If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Bullerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. School must be starting soon. The threats of a teacher strike have started. Welcome back, kids. Here's Scott Thompson. Are you doing that from the boys' room? Washroom down the hall? That's... Clearly, he's at school too early because there's nobody there. Hi, it is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, lots of stuff going on today. And the poll question of the day today. Uh, oh, yesterday's was on the 20th anniversary of the blackout, 2003. Are you confident with the reliability of our electricity good, grid? Pretty much split even Stephen on that one, which is nice to know as we're heading down the road to EVs. All right, and, and also the big issue of the day, and it's not only in the city of Hamilton, it's in every major center and small town. You go up to cottage country, there's people living in tents, and I'm not talking about the family campground here. So uh, the city of Hamilton's new uh, encampment protocol will allow up to five tents on public property as long as they are not within 100 meters of playgrounds and schools. Are you up for or against the following uh, encampment sites in the city? And right now, like over 80 percent of you, 90 percent are saying no, uh, we're not OK with this. So, um, you know, I... This is an incredibly complex problem, and, 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 and again, caused by politicians who have failed to build homes over the last 20 years. Let's not forget that. And we know there's been a pandemic. We know there's supply chain issues. We know the cost of building materials have gone up. We know interest rates have gone up. That would have happened anyway, anyway, anyway. But, of course, when you have a problem that existed long before the uh, global pandemic, that being a housing shortage... That's the reason people are buying investment properties. Um, this, like healthcare, this was a problem long before a global pandemic. And now all of those things that the politicians are saying are just aggravating this old, 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 old problem of our inability to build because building's bad and building's environmentally uh, uh, unfair. It, it's environmentally damaging. We can't do that. Well, guess what? We're here where we're here, uh, where we are after bringing in the amount of immigrants that we supposedly need in order to keep the country running and the jobs filled. So you can't suck and blow here. You need to build homes. And now... You know, everybody is on board and building homes. Where the hell were they prior to the pandemic? After 20 minutes, 20 years of, of the Wynn government and the McGinty government building Zippo. And now we are where we are. And now all the political parties are scrambling to try to get houses built. And there will be mistakes made because we're rushing this because we have no other choice. And now we're stuck with encampment protocols. And again, uh, an incredibly complex problem. And, and how do you solve it? And, you know, they talk about the, the, the you know, uh, not within 100 meters of playgrounds and schools, up to five tenths on public property. Until when? It's August 15th. September? October? November? That's 90 days. So what, do we take them all down in 90 days? 
and transfer these people somewhere indoors? Or do we keep them in their pup tents through the course of the winter? I understand this is only one piece of the puzzle, but it is not even that. If you were doing this back in the spring to get you through the summer, maybe. Not now. You need field hospitals like they were going to build for the pandemic, but were never used or did build. You need some sort of big plan. If you're going to do something that's temporary, but at least gets you through the four seasons in Canada. And a tent is not the answer. So where is this going? And along with the housing debate, which finally the prime minister realizes he has to get on board. This is going to be a problem. Not only for the last 20 years, it's going to be an even bigger problem for the next 20 years. And the whole Greenbelt discussion, everybody better get ready to sit down, roll up the sleeves, as the PM would say, and have a really hard discussion. Because this issue is not going away. And we're arguing more about trees than we are our own citizens who can't afford to get into a home. That's just sad. And this temporary situation to get us, what, another 90 days? Then what are they going to do, start banging for more money? These people are out in, in the winter. Now we got to get them indoors. Come up with a permanent temporary plan right now. It's not just here. It's everywhere. And all the politicians are all trying to deflect this in other directions to uh, escape their incompetence of getting us where we are. This is a self-inflicted wound. And here we are. And the, the answer to this problem, or a piece of the puzzle, for what, 90 days? Is the tent encampment. Okay, great. But what's after that? And I would suggest you figure out an answer to that before 90 days. Are you going to take this through January, February, March? Is that where we're going with this? I cannot believe the incompetent politicians who got us here and are now scrambling to try to find a solution to a problem that will exist for the next 20 years. Mark my words. All right, uh, enough crap going on uh, up here. It gives me a headache. Uh, let's see and talk about the crap going on south of the border. Uh, and, and maybe that'll make you feel a little bit better about your leadership here in some way. I don't know. I think uh, there's enough crap to go around. Uh, back up the truck, as they say. Brian J. Karam is joining us, journalist, author, White House correspondent, political analyst for CNN, fourth criminal case for Donald Trump, this one out of Georgia. Brian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. How about yourself, man? So so far, so good. I love this because it distracts us from the crap that's going on up here. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and hey, I, we're always a good distraction for the rest of the world. Come on well, down to the U.S. We and sell we're, it. <laughs> and we're right behind you uh, as the yes, tail wags. All right. So, anyway, uh, give us an update here on what is going on. This is the fourth indictment for Donald Trump. What does this mean past one, two, or three? How is this different? 
Well, if he gets nine more indictments, he gets a he gets his uh, check off and he gets some free waffles at the Waffle House. <laughs> yeah, there you he's go. Got, he's got ninety one felony charges against him now in four different jurisdictions. This one is the most extensive. It's a RICO charge, so it's a recurring uh, racketeering and influence charge, which means that it was uh, they call it the Enterprise. I love how the uh, they come up with great little slogans and nicknames. So his group of people putting it together is called the Enterprise. And in a 96-page indictment, they walked through everything they did, him and uh, Mark Meadows and uh, Rudy Giuliani and his 15 other or 16 other uh, named and indicted co-conspirators and 30 unindicted co-conspirators, how they went about uh, the effort to try and upset and rig the election after they lost it. So it's very extensive, very serious. Donald Trump, I predict this time next year, will be in prison. He won't be on the ballot. I've been saying it for a while, and now it's good to see that others are starting to see that as well. Talk about the racketeering charge, because, again, um, this is something we normally hear with gangsters. So uh, why that charge? Well, well, you know, I spent four years covering the (laughs) Trump administration, and all the reporters go, hey, this is a four-year RICO charge. And we're right. (laughs) I mean, it is an organized crime uh, story, and he organized, although not very well, more like disorganized crime, but he he tried to organize a way to to keep himself in office after he had lost the 2020 election. So this is everyone who helped him do it. And it's it's a variety of things that he did do and a variety of things that, I mean, it goes through, this whole thing walks through, for example, uh, his false claims. Anywhere from 250,000 to 300 ballots were dropped mysteriously. That's a lie. Thousands of people attempted to vote in November 3rd, 2020. That's a lie. And it just goes through this entire indictment, goes through all the lies that he told in furtherance of a criminal conspiracy for him to keep his office. And in fact, it goes back to something that he said from the very beginning when he was trying to talk to the people in Georgia. And he said, and I'll pull up the, uh, here, here it is. He goes basically that, um, you tell you just say it was rigged, say it was corrupt, and we'll take it from there. And basically, who he was saying that would take it from there is him and the you know, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. That set it all up. And so, so from then on, he was trying to rig it so he'd stay. So, uh, in the midst of all of this, he's trying to conduct some sort of election campaign. How does this affect it? When do these two trains collide? Well, these trains have already collided. Uh, We're just going to see the explosion, you know, in real time. I mean, he wants to complain that he's they're prosecuting him or persecuting him because he's running for office. He's running for office to avoid prosecution. He's hoping that he could win and then he can have the federal charges dismissed. And he's going to try and defame uh, the Georgia case so that uh, he gets it thrown out and that none of this is going to work. Donald Trump is going to talk himself into a prison cell sooner rather than later. And it's going to be interesting because you can't, it's hard to, he's not going to be in the county lockup, but I think there are 13 military bases in Georgia, which would house him, him and this, you know, his secret service, you know, enclave would be in a, you know, housing unit there, or 
I don't know. Maybe they reopen Alcatraz and make it Mar-a-Lago West. <laughs> yeah, add some paint. What the heck? Um, yeah. You know, we've talked at length about other Republicans and why someone isn't stepping up. Nobody wants to touch Donald Trump, say anything about him. Are are they all and have they been this entire time just letting this run its course? How will this change the race if this does all go down this way? Well, I I, I think it will change the race, and I think it's inevitably will have to change the race. I mean, you know, think about it this way. The standard bearer for the Republican Party right now is under indictment for from four different jurisdictions, 91 felony charges, facing RICO charges, 18 indicted co-conspirators, 30 unindicted co-conspirators, facing federal and state charges, and has been adjudicated twice as a rapist. That doesn't really fare well with <laughs> for the general electorate. There, it's not going to win them the votes they need for uh, the GOP to take over the presidency. So the GOP is in full free fall. And who comes out of this is anyone's guess. And it's frightening to think who might come out of it and if the Democrats will have an answer to it. But we'll have to wait and see. So nobody has stepped up and said, OK, he's out. This is bad news. I'm the person. Well, yeah, DeSantos, but everybody he has the appeal of day-old roadkill. Nobody <laughs> wants him. So <laughs> who, who's it going to be? That's, oh, you know, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. I mean, you know, really, I mean, there's just at this point, what, what the Democrats should fear is if somehow Liz Cheney gets a foothold into this race. That would be devastating for the for the uh, Democrats because she she has crossover appeal. But is we'll that see. possible? I, I mean, is that possible? It's it's so early in the race, man. It's yeah. it, it, anything is possible at this point. Now, you know, the caucuses aren't until the first of next year. Four months from now, who knows where we are? How many more charges? I'm still waiting for Donald Trump to get a hundred, you know, felony charges against him before the end of the summer. He's only nine short. Come on, what's the over under in Vegas for that? <laughs> Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent, political analyst for CNN. As always, Brian, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, be well with yourself, my brother, and talk to you soon. Uh, we've talked a lot about housing, and as you know, if you listen to the show, uh, it, it's uh, I'm disgusted of where we are uh, as a result of a lack of building long before the pandemic. Just as uh, the pandemic exposed the weak links in healthcare, we are certainly seeing the same thing in housing. And now we are on, on a mad dash to uh, catch up. And as Campbell Clark, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail, ha- has said, this is the hottest political issue. And I would also add to that that I believe this is going to be the hottest political issue for a very long time. I mean, 5, 10, 15 years. And it's already been a problem for that many years. To talk more, uh, Campbell Clark, his article is Go Big or Go Home on Housing. Mr. Trudeau, Campbell Clark, a chief political writer with the Globe and Mail here now. Campbell, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, good afternoon. Why are the liberals slow to build? Why have they been slow to build? As I said, I mean, this goes back many uh, decades, uh, a couple of decades anyway. Uh, uh, this problem has just been growing and growing and growing, exacerbated by the pandemic and the fallout of that. But why, why is build a bad word? Yeah, that's a good question. I honestly think that build, slow to build has been a problem for provincial governments, federal governments going back years. So this is a a longer uh, and broader problem than just the liberals in Ottawa. But what's really surprising yeah. is 
it's been a pretty obvious political problem for a year and a half at least, and they still haven't seemed to see it, see it coming. Right, this has become you know red hot, and you would think that even if we were all slow to see it coming for you know more than a decade, they'd see it in technicolor now, and they aren't getting around to it. They haven't got around to going big on this yet, and that's surprising. And it looks like, and thank goodness, although the Greenbelt uh, debate is going to continue on until for, for the next 10, 20 years as well, but this has seemed to draw attention to this even more. And it almost seems like two trains on the same uh, track coming towards each other in the sense that, you know, everybody's saying we don't need to build on the, on the Greenbelt. We have all of this other land and yet we have a housing shortage. So it's almost as if they're painting themselves into, into a corner here. So um, I've heard an expert say we've got 10 to 40 years of, of available land before we hit the green belt. Why hasn't that been developed? Yeah, so that's a really good question. The first thing is that the pace of building, especially in Ontario, like we have to remember that this is particularly an issue in Ontario and British Columbia. So the pace of building has been slower than the pace of population growth. And as uh, the economist Mike Moffat has pointed out, there's been really fast population growth in Ontario in the last six or seven years. So that has been one of the issues as well, right? There's just more right. pe- more people and it's happening a lot faster. But I mean, there's a lot of reasons why slow to build has been the norm. First of all, the federal government pulled out uh, more than a decade ago, essentially, of building home- affordable homes, right, at the, the low end of the spectrum. There's pretty high development costs for developers that want to build houses and uh, a apartments uh, in in a lot of communities in Ontario because municipalities use that to fund, you know, their their budgets. Um, and, you know, there's been other reasons why uh, building has been slow. I mean, right now you look at high interest rates, right? It's costing to build. So clearly there has to be some kind of incentives. Everybody knows there's a supply issue in housing and residential building, but, you know, there haven't really been uh, fast-moving policies to deal with that. And I guess there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one is just that that's the way we've been doing things. And the other is, you know, there are every community, every cons- politician's constituents includes people that already own homes. Mm-hmm. And I guess the third one is it's such a big, complex problem that nobody really wants to own it. But still, by now you'd think everybody would hear the screaming from their constituents. And now interest rates are higher than they've been in 20 years. Uh, and think of what we could have been doing 20 years ago if we uh, sort of got ahead of the curve here. Um, uh, uh, you said that, um, you know, this is the hottest political issue right now. Would you fair to say that this is going to be a political issue for the next five or 10 years? Yeah, I think, you know, we can see that even if building of homes, especially in Ontario, as I said, were to increase 50%, we wouldn't catch up uh, to the population growth that we've seen in recent years and that is coming, right? So it is going to be an issue that lasts for a while, but there could be some things that uh, change things in the next couple of years or at least have an impact, you know? Well, for one, if interest rates came down because, you know, if inflation was considered to be uh, low enough that interest rates, that would at least be an issue for current homeowners that have seen their mortgage costs go up. But also, you know, if you can, if the government can go big and start the building on a, you know, incite building or incentivize building on a large scale, it would start to move the dial a bit. It could change the markets a little. It could be have an impact, but it's not going to be an immediate impact. You're right. It's going to take years 
probably for the housing shortage to sort itself up in a way that, you know, you see the prices really adjust. Is this on the government's radar? It doesn't seem to be one of the top kitchen table issues that we're seeing today with Canadians, whether it's affordability, housing, run through the list. Uh, is this is this government capable, capable of building stuff like this? So that's a good question. I mean, it is on their radar. It has become on the radar. You have We have heard liberals talking about it a little more. In fact, just yesterday, uh, the the new housing minister, Sean Fraser, did an interview where he said the federal government should ne- have, never have got out of the direct development of housing, affordable housing, mm-hmm. which you know, was happening before the liberals came to power. But, and we've heard them talking about, you know, doing things about affordability for housing, but whether they're really going to take the ambitious steps, um, you know, to have a real big impact, we haven't heard that yet. And we're, we're waiting to see. In fact, you know, there's a couple of things that are being recommended pretty widely by widely by experts and economists, such as removing the GST on purpose-built rental housing. You know, that was in the Liberal campaign platform in 2015, mm. and they haven't done that. So, you know, if they would just um, do some of the things that are pretty widely endorsed by experts in the field, by economists to incentivize building, if they would take this as a priority that would have an impact but of course it's also going to take provincial governments municipal governments changing building codes and so on so it's going to be a big multi-level effort if there's going to be an you know at the end of the day it seems the canadians had to be slapped with the numbers that there's x number of people coming in which we all know we need immigration and there's only this many houses being built i mean this just exacerbates the problem um what has what has finally hit Canadians over the head with this issue? Why are they all of a sudden getting it now? I think, well, let me rephrase that. I think Canadians have been getting it for a long time. Politicians are just finally seeming to get it. Yeah, well, look, the bills have suddenly shot up, right? Like for rental housing this year, you can see in some communities, you know, there's 25, 30, 40% rents. You know, when when an apartment goes vacant, suddenly landlords are jacking up the prices. But, you know, this did happen sort of, uh, you know, uh, gradually, then suddenly, as someone said about going bankrupt, they... There was, uh, you know, a slower, slower building than population growth for a long period of time. But as, you know, I cited Mike Moffat, the economist before, he noted like uh, immigration did really um, uh, have an impact. But, you know, population growth in Ontario came from a lot of things, including, you know, international students, a lot more of them yeah. than we'd had, you know, in the previous decade, in the last five or six years. and when the pandemic hit and people had a lot of money that they weren't spending on travel and so on, people started spending money on housing and renovations and building, yeah. buying bigger houses and cottages and so on. That flooded money into the system and that hit jacked up prices too. And now, of course, we're seeing higher interest rates. So it seems like this was a slow moving problem coming at us and then it suddenly took off because of a flood of money into the economy. Campbell Clark with us, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail, the latest uh, go big or go home on housing, Mr. Trudeau. Campbell, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. 
So, uh, just when I was coming out of holidays last week, I heard, you know, rumblings and try not to listen to the news too much, but did because, you know, you have to. Uh, but on a holiday, you know, trying to get away and heard, uh oh, uh, something about an, another strain or what have you of COVID-19, which we, my goodness, have spent so much time over the last three years talking about it. Um, is that a concern? And now we're also hearing, uh, news from a new report shedding light on how the pandemic impacted Canada and has found a high immunity level among the population as a result of the Omicron strain, which uh, about 76% of us got in some form. Let's bring in Dr. Christopher Labos, Associate Epidemiologist and Cardiologist, McGill University, and is here now. Christopher, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Yes, quite well. So, Christopher, let's start with this new strain. What do we know? How concerned should we be about this? Uh, so this strain is called UG.5. It is an Omicron subvariant. So in some ways, it is fairly similar to many of the other strains that have been circulating for the past year and a half at this point. Um, it is becoming more and more common. So it does appear as if it's outcompeting the other Omicron strains, which is why it was upgraded in importance by the World Health Organization, which is why everybody's talking about it. And especially in the UK, and in the U.S., it does seem to be becoming more and more common with each passing week. So it looks as if it's going to outcompete the other variants. It doesn't appear as if it's behaving differently from the other Omicron strains in terms of symptomatology or severity to any major degree. But it does appear to be a little bit more infectious. So it's probably responsible for the small uptick of cases that we're seeing, which given that we are very shortly going to be in the fall with schools starting, um, that uptick could become more pronounced because that's essentially what sort of happened last year. If you remember, things were relatively quiescent during the summer. And then in the fall, everything got worse with COVID, influenza, NRSV sort of um, surging at the same time. So there is some worry that the same sort of thing could happen again this year, because unfortunately, fall and winter is when respiratory viruses tend to circulate. That's why we call it, that's why we call it cold and flu season. Uh, we remember the Omicron variant, of which there were many, and the speed at which this uh, would spread, however, nowhere near as le- lethal and pushing the other strains out. Now new information coming out that 60, uh, 76% of us had some form of that. How does that, oh, for, well, you, can, you can speak on that, and how does that set us up for future variants? Well, it really depends. I mean, the reason why the Omicron variant was such a disaster and the only reason why it was a mitigated disaster as opposed to an unmitigated disaster is because we had such a high vaccination rate. And in fact, the report in the uh, Canadian Medical Association Journal that you're referring to actually comments on that specifically, that the Omicron variant was so much more infectious that it really just overwhelmed the entire system. Before Omicron, only about 10% of the Canadian population had actually gotten COVID. It was actually quite low and probably a lot lower than most people realized. And then with Omicron, that's when everything really shot up. And so when you get back to March of of this year, which is when the researchers were, were collating their data, it does appear as if about three quarters of the population has some immunity to COVID with respect to antibodies in their bloodstream. However, that also means that about one in four Canadians don't. So as long as we maintain Omicron subvariants, 
will probably be relatively okay, especially if people get their upgraded boosters in the fall. But if something completely new comes along, I mean, the same thing that we saw with Omicron could repeat itself. Now, there's no indication as of yet that we're going to get something drastically different, but there was no indication that Omicron was going to happen, right? When we had just had the Delta variant circulating, everybody sort of said, well, this is probably how things are going to settle. So the problem with unpredictable things is that you can't predict them. So right now, things appear relatively stable, but nobody can predict the future. If we could, I would have won the lottery a long time ago. <laughs> so 76% of us have immunity. What's the message on the booster? Because, you know, some are going to say, Christopher, well, you know, I added, I'm immune to it now, so I don't need to get my booster. I don't need to follow up on the protocol anymore. What's the message here? Uh, the message to that is that would be true if you could only get COVID once but you can get COVID multiple times. And mo a lot of people have proven that they've gotten COVID multiple times and immunity wanes with time. So if we have a good uptake of the booster, we are going to spare the healthcare system a surge of people being hospitalized. And if we don't have a high uptake of the booster, we could very likely put additional strain on a healthcare system that quite frankly can't really take it right now with all the ER closures, with all the short staffing, with the fact that a lot of people just don't have access to family doctor anymore. We don't need yet another problem to put more strain on a healthcare system that is struggling even during the best of times. We forget that pre-pandemic in the winter, hospitals we're usually overwhelmed with just influenza and RSV cases. Throw COVID on top of that mix with all the problems that we've had because of the pandemic, hospitals are going to struggle. So even if you say to yourself, we'll all probably survive this. Yeah, okay, that's all well and good. But you have to think, number one, about the healthcare system. And number two, about the fact that if you get seriously sick and need to go to the hospital, you might be in for a very rough time there because hospitals you know, might end up be struggling in the winter. Mm. And don't forget, a year ago, they were struggling, especially the pediatric hospitals, when we had all these kids getting sick simultaneously with the three circulating viruses. So I wouldn't be as sanguine about the future as some people seem to be, because it's not one and done with COVID. People get multiple infections, and this immunity wanes with time. So that's why it's important to keep up to date with your booster shots in the same way that it's important to keep up to date with the flu vaccine, because, yeah, you might survive an influenza infection, but the influenza can be very, very severe and knock you flat on your back for a very long period of time and lead to long-term complications. So you don't want something like that to actually happen. Dr. Christopher Labos with us, Associate Epidemi uh, Epidemiologist and Cardiologist at uh, McGill University, an update on where we are with COVID. Christopher, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We have talked at length about the housing situation uh, and the shortage of housing and the ramifications uh, of that, the rippling effect, which of, co of, co of course include, uh, you know, people at the other end of the spectrum, those trying to join the middle class, uh, often end up in the worst conditions. And now we see that with tents and such. We're going to talk more about that with the city's housing director. But another solution that has been proposed to these, uh, this situation are is tiny homes. The Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters have been pitching this idea, uh, and it seems like it's moving forward. However, the location has changed. That has a lot of North End residents off guard. Uh, our guest covered this issue in the Bay Observer. It looks like council is moving forward for a full vote on this. Uh, to join us now, Kathy Renwald, local journalist, North End resident, and here now. Kathy, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Sure, I am. Thanks. 
Before we get into this, how's the garden this year? <laughs> you know what? They're fabulous because <laughs> they've had a lot of rain and everything's huge. You can hear it's the looking good right now. I know it's looking good, isn't it? All right, yeah. enough of that. Uh, yeah. I just had to get that in, though, Kathy. Okay. Good for you. Um, so, where do you see this? What's happened with this project and the change of plan or, or site for it? Well, I think the important thing to know is that it was only revealed on Thursday of last week in the media that Strawn Street in the North End was the recommended site by the city for the building of 25 tiny homes. So people find out about it Thursday. Um, and then if you want to be part of the process to speak at the meeting about your feelings about this announcement, people had about 12 hours to get on a list. So a lot of the uh, resentment and anger is the fact it came out, it seemed to come out of nowhere. People were not consulted in the North End, and they had very little time to prepare uh, statements about it. And, of course, a lot of people are away on holidays, and not everybody reads the paper or listens to radio. So a lot of people probably are still finding out. Why this site change? I understand that this wasn't initially a selected site. No, it was not. And um, at the city council meeting, uh, the only explanation that was offered was we reviewed all the city sites that were possible. And the uh, director of housing said, this one doesn't tick all the boxes, but that's what we're recommending. So it almost seemed like some odd compromise and a very uh, odd choice because it's a very small site. It's right across the street from the residential area from housing. And it's not even on the list of the uh, HATS people as a location they wanted to be. All their other locations have been rejected. This is the smallest. It's in a residential neighborhood, and it gets chosen. So there are a lot of bewildered people, and HATS appears to be one of them that found out pretty late that this was the chosen site. So where does this go now? What happens now? Well, um, there, there are some issues that really the city hasn't elaborated on. I've put some questions to them. A, it seems to not conform to the zoning there, and which would, under most cir circumstances, require a zoning change, which takes a lot of time. It's also practically at the very edge of the CN line, main line, by the GO station. And CN has opposed any kind of residential there, or at least appealed it to the land tribunal. So you can anticipate that those things could hold it up. I think people are pressuring, pressuring the councillor, Cameron Kretsch, that this is not the right site, and uh, writing to the city. So I think there's some hope in the neighborhood that this site could change. And they currently have, we currently, I live in the North End, there's already 30 tents in this section of Strong Street um, encampments that have been there quite a while. Uh, you know, we heard that we hear the term nimbyism, Kathy, that, you know, uh, these sites have been rejected before any information on why others were rejected, what makes this one so or better or, or check more boxes, as you said. Uh, and, and is it the fact that there was obviously th this seems like it's done very quickly and there's no real consultation on it? Uh, the other rejected sites include Sir John A. MacDonald, uh, which the school board uh, withdrew from any consideration of uh, hosting right. the tiny houses there. And I think there were there's pressure from certain parties to not have it there in a visible location, and that's just telling the truth. There's another big parcel of land the city owns. It's called Barton Tiffany, completely empty, immense uh, piece of land, but contaminated soil, so the city threw that one out. 
Uh, Dominion Glass uh, off of Barton seems to be a perfect site, but, you know, it's slated to become a park, uh, so they rejected that. Um, I think there's uh, not very good reasoning here and that uh, there are better sites. And this is just people have empathy, but it's uh, really a radical choice. And even the Hats people really want a little buffer from residential because they want these sites to work, too, and they don't want a lot of neighborhood conflict. Uh, and you said this site had been rejected uh, earlier as a site of a possible housing project. Well, uh, right close to this uh, tiny home site is the Jamesville Housing Project, which has been in the news a lot. Uh, it used to be an affordable housing complex. It's been vacant for quite a few years now. And the city has proposed um, a mixed residential use, including affordable homes, CN Rail is opposing that and holding it up, and that site sits empty and tied up in legality. So that's a very unfortunate uh, development in the North End, but just another one that's uh, aggravating to a lot of people on many planes. Only got a few seconds left, Kathy. What's next for you in this project? <laughs> in this project? Well, I'm, I'm just continuing to ask questions. And uh, as you know now, uh, when you ask questions of uh, City Hall, it takes a good long time to get an answer. So it just slows down the process. But I, I like to provide information instead of just speculation. Kathy Redwald with us, local journalist, North End resident, Tiny Homes, the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters have been pitching, uh, but some uh, question over location. Kathy, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Okay. Thanks, Scott. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we remember there was a cabinet shuffle in the federal government not too long ago, and now the federal uh, newly placed ministers uh, have until October 2nd to cut $15 billion from their spending plans. Uh, that's from Anita Anand in the Treasury Department, new in that position. Many thought that she would go there and we wouldn't hear from her again. And my goodness, she's making uh, some waves there as well. Let's bring in Michael Veal, Professor Economics. McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Center, and here now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Hope you are, too. So, Michael, obviously a cabinet shuffle not that long ago, and now $15 billion uh, cut from spending. Surprised at this? Is this just government uh, uh, upkeep, or, or, or is this an, an admission of perhaps some overspending? Uh, I'm not surprised. It was, it was in the budget. Um, the department's concerned, even though they may have new cabinet ministers, the departments will have been working on this uh, over the summer. Um, and, you know, $15 billion sounds like a lot, but remember, that's over five years. So that's really only $3 billion a year. And in fact, some of that's backhand loaded. So actually, this is pretty, pretty small change. Uh, the goal, as stated in the in the last budget, 2023, is not to reduce the amount Ottawa spends, but to normalize government spending by bringing the pace and scale growth back to a pre-pandemic path. Many would say, are we not already there? Were we not already there? Uh, your thoughts? No, I think I think it's very clear that the spending burst that occurred during the pandemic has not been totally reversed. Uh, and I think that there is, is room for government to reduce its expenditure. On the other hand, we've got to remember that when we talk about the federal government spending, which is $500 billion, um, of that $500 billion, uh, about $100 billion immediately goes to uh, uh, 
seniors to uh, pensions, et cetera. Uh, a little bit more than 100 billion goes to the province and territories, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a fair amount of money that is whittled away before we actually get to money that the federal government spends itself. Uh, this is more of a political question, but I'll throw it out anyway. Many thought that when Anita Anand went to this role at Treasury Board that we would, uh, some even said it was a demotion, that we wouldn't hear as much from her. Is it quite the opposite of that, that now we're going to see more focus uh, on this and the Treasury Board? So that's not my area of expertise, but I would actually uh, side with your latter interpretation. I, I think mm-hmm. that this was a signal that they were going to take this more seriously. At least I certainly hope so. And so as an, as an economist, how does this make you feel? Do you feel confident moving forward? Is this enough? Uh, well, enough is that is really subjective because, of course, the sorts of things the government is spending more money on, uh, some of those I think people think are, are very positive, for example, the dental care plans, things like this. Uh, but at the same time, you only have so much money and you have to spend it wisely. Um, I, I think that that broadly political decision of you know how big government should be that's that's something that different people will have different perspectives on but i do think that continuous control of the money that is spent to make sure that there isn't out and out waste is always important uh your thoughts i want to touch on on housing for for a second um uh, we we did a piece earlier today and this is one of the commentators said this was the newest hottest political issue considering where we are uh, post pandemic, uh, where we were pre pandemic and issues that we had there. Uh, is this going to be a short problem or is this something that we are going to have to deal with for the next five, 10 or 15 years? Yeah. So we've talked about this before and, and I'm not optimistic. Um, if you go back 30 years, uh, even during that period, the Canada was not producing as many houses as it should be. Uh, And that problem just has never been solved through a variety of governments. Uh, The difficulty now is that as we increase immigration, that's putting additional pressure on a problem that we had already not solved. And so I I don't think we can be optimistic. I'm hoping, of course, that there will be a sea change. But as of now, I don't see, see that happening. What is it that even federal, provincial, or municipal governments can do? Um, because many are, 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 are passing the buck, blaming others, just even the situation, which really has just compounded a problem that was there prior to uh, the current economic situation and such. But what is it? what can government do? When you look at this from an economist's point of view, where's the bottleneck? Well, I think, again, if you go across the political spectrum, you'll find people that say what we need to do is uh, remove the bottlenecks and the, that restrict the private sector from providing greater housing. Um, and then other people say, well, that won't increase the supply of affordable housing and we need government involvement to, to produce that. Um, I actually think we've worked ourselves into such a crisis um, that we're going to need to pursue all those avenues. And to be very honest, I think even as we do that, it will probably not prove to be enough but at least it will mitigate the problem. Are we getting caught up with the world uh, word affordable? Because, you know, that means different things to different people. And it seems to be, as you said, right across the board, many are addressing this politically, that it's just an issue for those trying to join the middle class. As you alluded to, this is a, an issue right across the board. Is it? There's a shortage of everything. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I, I believe that 
when we are talking to the private sector, perhaps there should be less uh, emphasis on the uh, the affordability aspect. Just as long as new units are built at a certain density, uh, let the market work that out. On the other hand, from the federal government's perspective and, and provincial and municipal governments, I think they're unlikely to want to build housing that wouldn't somehow fit under the affordable umbrella. And so I think that, again, it has to be across the spectrum uh, adjustment. Uh, and it, it's going to be difficult. It's not easy because we've shown over the last 30 years that this is a problem that we're collectively not very good at solving. Uh, years ago, many have said that we should go back to the government housing plans of the past where, you know, so much gets built every year. It's designated for that. Is that, is that a solution we need to look at? Well, I think government needs to build more, more units, uh, at various levels. Uh, but I do think that the, probably the major share of the, of the solution, uh, that we can accomplish is by trying to free the private sector. Uh, as much as possible. Uh, but there are going to be problems and there are competing interests. And one of the problems is, is that in general, municipal governments uh, aren't as interested in uh, relaxing the restrictions that are needed uh, to produce the kind of housing. And at the same time, uh, we tend to make it harder for people to go into the rental housing business. In other words, to produce rental housing. Uh, we think of things that they should do better but perhaps we need to put more consideration into trying to make sure that we get the quantity of supply on the market, uh, because that's where we're woefully short. Is a national plan needed here, or is this a problem for provinces like BC and Ontario? I think it's. A, I think we're at a national uh, level problem. Uh, I don't think any level of government can bow out at this point. Uh, but as I say. Uh, it is, it is very hard in part because, particularly at the local level, there are usual, usually problems to build more. Um, and we've got ourselves into a mess. I would have liked that we weren't there, but when you're in a mess, you sometimes have to do some things that you don't really want to do. And one of them, I think, is to try to relax some of the restrictions we've had on the building of housing. Michael Veal, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Centre. As always, Michael, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks. Uh, the union representing elementary school teachers in Ontario is preparing to ask its members for a mandate to strike after a lack of sufficient progress in negotiations with the government. Uh, it would hold imp uh, the ETFO will hold or will hold in-person meetings to conduct strike votes and address bargaining issues. Minister of Education for the province of Ontario, Stephen Lecce, is with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Good to be back. So, uh, yeah, it's summer, and that's the good news. We, uh, we're, we escape all of this, but I guess uh, also the good news here is this is starting before September, which is something you were eager about way back when to get these negotiations moving. Where are we with these negotiations? Why, are, why is there chatter of a strike? Well, I mean, it's disappointing that EDFO, one of the, one of the uh, large uh, education unions, decided to perceive the strike vote. Weeks ahead of school, when the focus should be on getting back to class, not back to a picket line. I mean, we, we need to put this in context. Young people have faced some great difficulty more in the last few years and perhaps in a generation. And I, I can't imagine what is more important than some than stability uh, to in-person learning for kids. So, you know, look, this happened. It's not the first rodeo. It's not the first time parents have seen this story. We dealt with it just last fall and just two years prior than that. And 
pretty much on a rotating basis of every two to three years in the province for the last 30. So it is frustrating, but I also want to make the case that it doesn't mean, you know, this is the end. I mean, we're, we're working hard at the table. We're with the union today, another one tomorrow. We've been meeting 170 plus times. I still believe there's a path to a deal, but I, I will make the case to everyone listening that, you know, keep, you know, having kids out of class is not a solution to an impasse at the negotiating table. Imposing hardship on them is not uh, the solution when we know that they face learning loss and some great difficulties, mental health, academic issues, mental, physical health. I mean, there's been so much regression. So my point simply is let's stay at the table, not walk away. Let's focus on getting a deal done as soon as possible for their members, yes, but for the kids who deserve to be in school in September without disruption. As you said, and we've talked about this many times, Stephen, I mean, I'm old, I'm old enough to remember being involved in this as a student and now as a parent um, uh, with these things every year or so or a couple of years. A lot of us thought that this was behind us for a while. Uh, why now? Yeah. Yes, I think, you know, uh, you know I think we all were. Uh, hoping that'd be the case after the challenges of last fall. But, you know, look, it's a question really that the education unions are going to have to answer. Why do they believe a potential strike uh, weeks ahead of school um, is a good thing for the child? Uh, Why would the casualty stay at the table the one way and make your case and fight hard like, you know, everyone else is doing, the public sector is negotiating with the government, um, and so, look, I, I know this is a tactic they use. They use it a lot. For the government's part, I'm going to stay focused on doing what we need to do, which is land the preserves in-person learning, but we can get back to the basics. A lot to look forward to this September. We have a brand-new strategy on reading and on math to lift performance. We're increasing accountability over school boards. We're going back to basics. We're hiring 2,000 teachers specialized in literacy and math promotion. We've got a new curriculum. Uh, language curriculum that, in, that it introduces, reintroduces phonics and cursive writing and, you know, strengthens financial literacy in the curriculum. These are life and job skills young people need. And I just uh, think we've got to maintain the momentum because the last year was a good year for these kids. And I think most parents would accept their child, you know, was really a good path. I don't want to interrupt that momentum. I don't want to set them further back. I want to really allow these kids to heal, to grow and to learn the skills necessary in an increasingly difficult and competitive economy around it. So I'm just hoping I could appeal, uh, you know, to the judgment and, 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 and the decency of those we're negotiating with to not walk out and not delay the ability on the government, school boards, and unions to get deals to keep these kids learning in school. Maybe I'm asking the wrong person here, uh, Minister, but compensation, hiring practices, working conditions, smaller class sizes are the major issue. Has anything changed? And it seems we come to a solution, but then the same issues come up again. It's like, can we not rectify these issues and move on as opposed to continually debating the same thing over and over again? Yeah, I think a lot of people are frustrated that we're, Going through this again, um, you know, certainly compensation is among one of the big challenges. I mean, we've made the case that we pay our educators in Ontario uh, among the best in the country. I mean, we're talking about a sharp increase of thousands of individuals on the Sunshine List just last year from this uh, to the year prior. And, of course, the pensions and benefits really are the best of the best, uh, as, long as, long, as well as the sick leave provision. So, you know, look. 
I'm here to make the case that I'm prepared to invest in the educator and in the classroom. I want to retain good talent. They're responsible for the next generation of young people. Like I can't imagine what's more important professionally. And I'm really grateful for what they do. What I do believe is at the leadership level, the idea of, of, of activating their members for a fight when the focus should be preparing for a positive school year for the kids just seems to be misdirected focus. And I think it's just disconnected from the realities on the ground when so many kids have faced challenges with learning loss and mental health. So I'm going to stay focused. I'm imploring them to do the same. We still have a path to a deal. There's creative ways to get there. And uh, I'm not going to lose sight of that. I mean, there's always noise. There's always these types of things done, pressure tactics used by the unions. I mean, we've all seen this story before. But I don't take away that, that this probably creates a needless uh, pressure and perhaps even some anxiety for parents. And I just want them to know we're, we're just going to stay focused and hunker down, stay at the table, and encourage Edfo to do the same, not to walk out on this negotiation and not set us back. Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education, Province of Ontario, uh, ETFO, talking about holding a strike vote. Stephen, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a good day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We have talked about this a lot, and there is no easy solution. Uh, a majority of Hamilton councillors have given initial approval to an encampment protocol calling for a pilot project and provisions for public washrooms, shower facilities for those who are unhoused and living in tents in parks. The encampment protocol suggests a minimum of six sites be set aside, accommodating 160 individuals currently unsheltered in Hamilton, permanent washrooms, drinking water, hydro connections, waste management, uh, primary criteria when city staff staff uh, looking at sites to talk more about all of this. Uh, Michelle Baird is with us, Director of Housing Services, City of Hamilton and here now. Michelle, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thanks, Scott. It's good to be here. Michelle, this is obviously an incredibly complex uh, situation here, and, and I don't envy, envy the task at hand that the city has uh, to deal with here. Um, where are we with this? Give us a bit of an update. So where we are right now, uh, the recommendation went to a committee yesterday, General Issues Committee. It will be ratified, hopefully, at Council on Friday. What was approved at committee was the recommendation to go forward to allow um, tents in parks, so encampments within parks. There are a number of provisions where tents, of course, are not allowed. We made a number of uh, changes to to the proposed protocol that you would have seen previously, based on the feedback that we received through the engagement process that's been happening over the past couple of months. Uh, The proposed protocol will not see those large-scale sanctioned sites that we had also explored, but rather a maximum of up to five tenths per per, uh, site is what we would see going forward. I think the other important pieces, as you mentioned, is the approval of providing for 24-7 washrooms as well as shower facilities uh, within the city. The sites of those particular washrooms haven't been identified yet because we want to find out where where we're going to have folks um, living and because, of course, we want to have those facilities nearby. In addition to that, approval to go forward with the HATS project as a pilot as well with a uh, starting site at the Strawn um, Linear Park in Hamilton, mm-hmm. but they do have a desire to move to a more permanent location, and the report did recommend 
that that move occur and it uh, it eventually become the the Hamilton Scout House. But there are some challenges there that need to be overcome before they they make that move. So as a starting point, they would have up to 25 uh, tiny cabins, tiny shelters, if you will. I would mm-hmm. say that none of this is truly a solution to homelessness, rather um, a recognition that we are in this situation where unfortunately we have a large number of people who are unsheltered in our city and trying to meet the needs in, in the best way we can. Both of our, our residents who find themselves unsheltered as well as housed folks who are living nearby who also want to use the same space for their purposes and their families. Describe, because people, you know, what they don't know or what they see is 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 how they interpret things. Uh, describe what these encampments could look like. Like you said, instead of having larger uh, uh, sanctioned uh, sites, these would be smaller, which would then assume that you need more of these sites because they're smaller. Is that accurate? Yes, that's correct. So the protocol that was approved applies to any city land um, anywhere in the city. And I am purposely saying city land because I think there was such a focus on parks. And of course, there's lots of park space uh, that makes up that land. But really, the protocol applies to all city land. And in any any uh, space, we would see up to five tents, not saying that every space will have five. Uh, we have lots of individuals who, for all sorts of reasons, um, would like to be in a more private space. So we might see anywhere from one to five tents at a location. And of course, um, people do choose who they want to live with, who their social group is. And so we do expect that there will be some some clustering, of course, but also know that there will be some movement from where we're seeing tents right now to sites across the city. We know, obviously, Michelle, this is not a answer. This is not a, a permanent solution. This has been temp- uh, a temporary piece of the puzzle, as as the mayor would say. Um, but many are wondering why there isn't a a more uh, complex temporary plan. And by that, I mean, uh, you, you've got like maybe two months or three months before the snow starts to fly. Have we not then created another problem in another couple of months, or are we hoping that that uh, the problem gets solved by then? So we would be very hopeful if we thought the problem would be solved by then. It certainly won't be. Hmm. Um, no. We do know that the winter brings on a whole new set of challenges. Historically, we have seen that there is some fluctuation with respect to who who remains outside. We also know that the HATS project alone will hopefully provide shelter to up to 25 individuals, and they do expect to be um, bringing people into shelter uh, within before Q4 this year into Q4. So I think we'll see some folks there. We're also bringing a second report when the mayor talks about it being a piece of the puzzle. There's a number of uh, items coming forward. One is coming in September to talk about what a winter response could look like. How do we make uh, overnight spaces available for people to come and, um, you know, get some respite from the cold and the weather for sure. And so that that piece of work is to follow. We do know, though, that we do not have enough shelter spaces and there's just no capacity to expand the number of beds available in such a short time period. The issues are, the issues are very complex. This is not where we would want to be. Um, I can tell you no one in housing services, no one in the city. We don't want to see people living in tents in parks either. And I don't think anyone in Hamilton wants to see that. But unfortunately, 
that's the reality of where we are and we need to take care of each other and take care of those that find themselves in that circumstance. So we are looking at winter response. We are looking at day-to-day. What are those services that are needed uh, really to take care of all the neighbors nearby as well as the individuals who are in parks? Only got a few seconds left, so uh, Michelle, we'll get back and talk to you about this more. But what about field hospitals similar to what was created for COVID-19? Is that an option? Is that is that out there? We looked at options like that. We looked at options like a managed outdoor shelter, per se. The challenge with all of those, Scott, is they're quite costly, as you can imagine, extremely costly to set up, to operationalize on a long-term basis. And they ultimately are not a, a road or solution to permanent housing. And so wherever possible, we are trying to invest the monies that we do have into permanent housing solutions that help us on the long term. That makes sense. Uh, Michelle uh, Michelle Baird with us, uh, Director of Housing Services, City of Hamilton. Uh, the major concern moving forward will be the winter. Michelle, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks so much, Scott. You know, I find it absolutely fascinating where we are with the housing situation in Canada and specifically in Ontario. We have people living in tents right the way across the country in towns and cities, and yet we are more concerned about a green belt than we are in housing the people who live here and the immigrants that are on our doorstep coming in. And we all love the green belt. We all want to preserve this land and what have you. But as the population continues to explode, this is a debate, a, a issue that is going to have to be managed every single year. If you think this is an issue now, Wait five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, because many have suggested the housing issue, which is the hottest issue right now, said one pundit that we had on earlier today. I would suggest this issue is going to be around for a very, very long time because there is no quick fix. Uh, the province of Ontario has formed a working group to respond to the concern raised by the Auditor General Bonnie Lissick in regard to the Green Belt. And where are we going to go moving forward on this? Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, and is with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you. I am. I hope you are uh, as well. Duff, thanks so much. Uh, do you agree that this is going to be an issue that, like, like it seems that, you know, uh, whenever anybody talks about the green belt, it's like they're slapped out and then that's enough of that talk and we move on. Meanwhile, we're seeing the population explode. We're seeing a massive shortage in housing. This is going to be a problem for the next several years, is it not? Uh, yes, I think it will be. Uh, there's no, quick fix, you have to build the housing. And that takes a while to get uh, all the approvals and, and actually get it built. Do you think as well, we are going to need a plan to deal with the green belt moving forward? Because this is going to be continual pressure on the green belt as the population of the country explodes. Uh, well, the studies that have been done, including by the Ontario government's own uh, uh, expert group found that there was plenty of land. We don't need the to develop the green belt in order to have housing 
And it's not much great to have uh, housing. Wait a sec, Duff. Wait a sec. Wait a sec. And, wait a sec. And- wait a sec, Duff. Duff. That's that's not infinite. Um, I've talked to many housing experts, and the, the average uh, the average figures I was told we have more than enough land for the next twenty to forty years before touching the green belt. Then this is going to have to be addressed, and we're dealing with this now because that land that we have for twenty or forty years isn't being touched. So how do we, we're going to have to negotiate this. We're going to have to, we're going to have to find a way to, 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 to manage this. Are we not? Sure. But if you're sacrificing um, food security and clean water, then it's not much, uh, not really great to have uh, housing without a food supply and clean water. So Duff, those are Duff, more many, basic, many, as uh, basic know, to living as, know, as housing. Duff, but I'm not an expert in that area. What I am an expert in is democratic good pro- government processes. And as the Auditor General pointed out, the Ford government's process was essentially corrupted by through preferential treatment being offered to a few property developers who are friends of Ford or friends of the uh, is this is party. this. Is this why, Duff, though, we do not or we do need a plan for this? This is exactly why we need a plan for this. And, you know, I respectfully uh, appreciate your points about clean water and what and what have you. But that I think that's very much on the extreme. Um, let's be honest. We're caring more about that than we are people who are living in tents in the towns and cities across this country because people have not built enough houses, whether it's in the green belt or in that white belt of land that's 20 to 40 years old. Uh, Well, I don't think there's been any study showing that protecting the green belt is the cause of lack of affordable housing. No, the reason that we're where we are, Duff, is because we protected the green belt, but then we've done nothing else. So it's great to protect the green belt, but you've still got to supply housing, and that's where we have failed. Yeah, and, you know, there's calls for various reforms from tax reform, that will in- incentivize uh, residential housing being built to the federal government, getting much uh, more directly back into developing affordable housing and then uh, essentially leasing it to uh, managers uh, so that the government's not managing it itself, like nonprofit organizations, things that, that were done in the past. Um, I'm not an expert again in that area, but right. if you don't have democratic good government processes, then you make bad decisions. All and right, let's talk. That means it has to be honest, ethical, fully transparent, Mm -hmm. meaningful public consultation with all stakeholders, not just your friends. And that's how you get good decisions because no uh, politician, political staffer, or government employee sitting in any provincial capital knows enough to make a decision on their own. There's Mm -hmm. always people out there who can come up with, oh, you didn't think about this unintended consequence that's going to occur if you do that. Or they're expert in their local area, or they're expert in a particular aspect of any decision-making or or policy area. And if you don't consult with them, you don't hear from them, you end up making bad decisions. And governments do it across the country, and Ford did it in this case. And Mm -hmm. his working group is likely not going to clean it up because there hasn't been a party across the country that has cleaned it up. But if all the loopholes aren't closed that allow for bad government decision-making, dishonest, unethical, secretive, unrepresentative, and and enforcement is not strengthened and penalties are not put in place, you're going to continue to have bad policy decisions made no matter what party's in power. Agree 100%, Duff. How do we balance 
how do we balance all of that with getting the job done? Because many have said one of the reasons we are where we are is because there's too many cooks in the kitchen. We go around and around and around and around, and nothing gets built on that 20 to 40 years worth of land that's available before we even touch the green belt. So how do we balance all of those concerns, make sure everybody's being heard, but at the end of the day, have a decision and get some houses built that will meet the expectations of our population growth? In any policymaking area, uh, if you have a good process, then you're more likely to re- come to, with a majority, a position that a majority of people will support. And if you shut people out, then they usually re- react to that by pushing against whatever you're doing because you shut them out. Include them, and then they'll feel they have they've had a say. Most people just want to say they don't. They understand they're not going to get 100 percent of what they want. That's not what democracy is. Democracy is a compromise of shaping the public interest from all the, all the stakeholders' interests. And the major stakeholders will be heard more because they represent more people or have more of a stake in an issue. But bad process will result results in gridlock and, and bad decisions in the end that are protested or taken to court, and, and that leads to delay. So, of course... On any issue, you're not going to satisfy everybody, and sometimes someone may take you to court, even if they were uh, mm-hmm. uh, they were given a voice, because they just fundamentally disagree with the conclusion. You can't stop that as long as uh, there is a court process to protect their rights. But again, a good process will uh, hear from all stakeholders and then uh, work with them all to figure out a, a compromise that does not violate any stakeholders' rights. Uh, or uh, violate their uh, and ignore their position entirely. And that's the way to move forward. It's it's been proven worldwide. And actually, uh, you know, these are the international standards for best practice in consultation and and policymaking. And and studies have shown they result in better decisions that more people are satisfied with. So stop with the corrupt rigged processes. Every government should be doing this, but the Ford government, especially in this area, and start doing uh, processes that are actually honest, ethical, transparent, and end up in representative decisions. Uh, let's hope we get something other than yes or no and a solution that falls in the middle somewhere. Duff Conacher, yeah, co-founder we also, of... Uh, we, we need a police investigation of this situation. It, I, I think that uh, if we don't have a full police investigation, we're not going to get to the bottom of just how bad this process was. The Auditor General has just revealed, I think, the tip of a corrupt iceberg in, of this uh, whole decision-making process, and the OPP needs to do a full investigation to get to the bottom Duff. of it. Duff Conacher, co-founder of and coordinator of Democracy Watch. Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. Scott Radley Shoke. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am doing fine. How are you doing? So far, so good. We've been talking about housing all day and tiny homes and and, and hydro and water for tent encampments and such. I was talking to a pundit earlier on today, and he said that, and this is the understatement of the century, uh, the housing issue is the hottest political issue right now. And I suggested to them that the uh, the housing political issue is not only hot now, it's been heading in this direction for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and it will continue, 
continue to be a hot issue for the next five to ten years because this ain't going anywhere soon. And the same thing with the green belt. The green belt needs to be managed continuously, not just there it is. Don't touch it. Don't like even talk about what's going to happen. It was, you know, uh, come up with 20 years ago. Everything needs to be addressed and debated. And this will continue for decades. Agree, disagree. Well, um, I don't know the number. I don't have a number in front of me. But how many homes do you think, how many housing units do you think could be constructed in a year in this country? What would be your best guess? I, I truly I don't, don't have know, a number. I, I don't, but I think we had 219,000 in Canada last year. That were built. Okay. That were built. And that's when over 500,000 Im- immigrants coming in, another 500,000 um, international students, family, friends, that sort of thing. Yeah, 800,000 uh, international sure. students. So, so yeah, so you've got already not enough homes and you are now bringing in more people than we could possibly, it seems, build homes for. And, you know, while you were off last week on your show, when I was filling in, we were talking about this and it's a tricky thing because anytime you talk about immigration with anything other than absolute unquestioned enthusiasm. Or the green belt. You're accused of being racist or xenophobic. It's not that. We, I think Canadians love immigrants and immigration, but. We are. But I don't know that we love it when there are more people coming than we can handle, I think there is a, a line that we could find somehow that would be a more manageable number, but we don't seem to be interested in that. We just want to throw the gates open and say, everybody come right now. And we can't, it's, it's not fair to us, but furthermore, it's not fair to them. How do you come here from another country, leave everything behind? On the expectation you'll have a better life in Canada, you get here and there is no place for you to live. How is that possibly fair to you? I I, I also uh, uh, believe that this green belt debate will continue um, because the nimbyism and municipalities who don't want to jump into that twenty to thirty to forty years worth of of land that is available before we touch the green belt is going to take forever. So uh, it, it amazes me to no end that it seems in order to distract that we haven't built houses, we debate the green belt. Uh, I, I'm honestly disgusted that we have people living in tents. We're developing protocol to try to get them into the winter, let alone through the winter. And we are more concerned about the green belt than we are our lack of housing. That is to me is absolutely disgusting. And I am a supporter of the green belt. It's a great idea, but this needs to be managed on a, on a yearly basis. And the fact that we are, are hearing more about green belt debates than we are about building homes for our young people and our homeless and the immigrants that are coming in, I find is just repulsive. Mm. Uh, you know what? So when, when the, um, um, the report came out last week for Bonnie Lissick and it pointed out, we don't need the green belt now to do this. There probably is going to come a time when we will expand yes. beyond our border. So I, I, I'm not taking issue with her report that says the green belt is not needed to be touched right now. Okay. But what happens in 20 years? Do we still hold Absolutely. this position? And I don't. Absolutely. 
And I, and you know what, Scott, I, my, my incline, my first inclination is yes, because we've, we have a, a generation of kids who have grown up on climate change and, and all that stuff and believing wholeheartedly in that, but wait till that generation that has gone through the theory and all that talk are adults now trying to afford a home. <laughs> yeah, I do yeah. believe that maybe their <clears throat> view will slightly modulate and they'll say, okay, I believe in climate change. I don't want climate change, but I also want a place to live. On that 20 to 40 year thing as well, why are we even talking about invading the green belt if there is that land? And there is that land. And it's because... Nobody is servicing it. And the municipalities aren't letting it go. And now all of a sudden that we're threatening the green belt. Oh, there's lots of land. Well, why aren't there homes already on it? Well, there's one other thing that we're going to see over the next little while. Again, the green belt is, is going to be a flashpoint for the, <clears throat> excuse me, for a while. But let's say 10 years from now, when we get to the point where we're 15, yep. where we do have to start discussing this seriously and there will still be those who will be adamantly against it. It'll be interesting to look back and say, you know, for all the talk that this was fertile, great agricultural land, it'll be interesting to see if over the next 10 or 15 years, any of that land or part of that land was actually used for agriculture. Good point. All right. Thank you, Scott. Have a great night. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Before the snow and freezing rain starts falling, let's get our local politicians, social agencies, area builders, local MPPs together at our city hall for a made-in-Hamilton solution to begin to solve our homeless crisis as we enter winter. Mr. Lowe. Keep right except to pass. 